Well, let's get to God's Word. First Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to be uh, this morning as we continue our look at the life and times of David. Last week we looked at David's wilderness wanderings in chapters 21 through 23 and how God provided for him so abundantly and in various ways. And this morning we now look at this text where David extends such great mercy to one who is his enemy. First Samuel chapter 24, I'll read the whole chapter, so follow in your Bibles as I read out loud. And when Saul returned from following the Philistines, if you remember it last time, one of God's means of provision was the Philistines attacked Israel at just the right time. And he had to quit pursuing David, but now he's fought off the Philistines, and so now he can chase David around the wilderness again. He, so Saul was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, so this is like the special operators of Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that is what you think it is. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. It's there in quotations possibly in your own Bible, but actually most commentators believe that they have, they have, it's a false prophecy that those guys are quoting from. It's not actually in the scriptures. Then moving on, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, to the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing... Uh, that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come? Judge and give sentence. Whoops, excuse me. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence to, between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are my, more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. So, 
So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the strongholds. This ends the reading of God's word. It is holy and inerrant and infallible. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, the context of all this is um, Saul is on a quest in pursuit of David. And it's hard to tell in, in the, as, as the narrative flows, but most commentators believe that at this point now, Saul has now been after David for going on ten years. Ten years in which David has not been able to go home. Ten years in which David has had to flee for his life. Ten years in which Saul has sought by his own hand at least twice to spear David against a wall. Ten years in which David has not been to enjoy his family and to see his wife. In fact, Saul has taken uh, David's wife Michael from him. Ten years in which he has run hungry, oftentimes thirsty, wondering if he can live the next day, not being able to worship in the tabernacle, not being able to be around his friends, not being able to do the things that David said, believes he's called to do. And yet then, in the midst of these ten years, in the midst of what you would think would be a lot of anger and, and, and rage at who Saul is, God provides David an awesome opportunity. An awesome opportunity. Saul walks into the cave, very cave, where David is hiding. And Saul, we see here, is utterly vulnerable. It says that he takes off his armor. He is in a position of vulnerability, literally. He's going to the bathroom. This is like shooting fish in a barrel. It is Saul and Saul alone, and David and all his men. They can end it right now. And David's men are like this. They look at this and they go, uh, this has got to be God's provision. David, last week we looked at in chapters 21 through 23, all the various ways in which God has provided, and they're going, yes! Yes, God has provided your enemy into your hands. This is our opportunity for vengeance and for revenge and for you to finally become what God has said he's going to make you, and that is the Lord's anointed, the king over Israel. And in the midst of this, though, in the midst of this, David, what he does is he stands up to his men. And it actually says there in verse 7, it says that David persuaded his men and would not permit them to attack Saul. That word persuaded is, in our English, does not give credence to how strong that word is. It actually means he stands between himself and Saul, between his men and Saul. That he is all there is between Saul and death. That he has to fight his men off of Saul. That he has to hold them back. That it's one of those scenes where, you know, someone's going like, hold me back, hold me back, I'm going to get after Saul. And David's the one who's holding them back. You see, David, it says here, he, he says it to Saul, that I have spared you. That when he had opportunity to seek out vengeance, he would not pursue it. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. Is our longing for vengeance and how in the world do we lay it down? How in the world do we, in the midst of our anger and our longing for vengeance, lay it down? First, we've got to understand our own desire for vengeance. See, the reality is is this. We're going to look at just two parts this morning, two very simple points. One, we relish vengeance. We relish it. 
And the second, though, is we must relinquish it. We must relinquish it. David's men are salivating at the opportunity. Here it is. And I think salivating is the operative word. Because revenge is something indeed that we long to taste. It's something that we relish. Revenge is something that we think about and we meditate upon. My, my wife and I enjoy good food. In fact, one of the shows that we like on Netflix right now is a show, it's kind of a, a well-done sort of documentary type uh, program called Chef's Table. And every time we watch Chef's Table, what, and it's, it's highlighting some of the great chefs from around the world and their stories. And every time you watch it, you just want to go, oh my goodness. All I can think about is eating, which is really bad because we're usually watching it at 9.30. And so we pull out every snack that we could possibly find at 9.30 at night. But we, we do the same thing with vengeance. And when someone has warned us, in fact, the old saying is this, right? When it talks about revenge, it talks about it in food terminology. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Now, what in the world does that mean? Vengeance is saying that it is like fine wine, that it's fermented in the deep recesses of the brain where we mull over our longing for revenge over and over and over again. In fact, one of the greatest books ever written is the book in, in liter- literature. You may remember this from high school reading, The Count of Monte Cristo, and in which for some 400 and seemingly 500 pages, depending on the edition, and you, you read it and you look at this elaborate, unbelievable scheme to get what? Revenge. Revenge. You should go read it. It is, it is mind-boggling, the brilliance of his revenge strategy. It is a dish served cold, not hot, where you just get angry immediately and lash out against your enemy. But revenge is the served cold. is the one where you've mulled over it for years or weeks or months, and you said, oh, this is how I can best, best get my vengeance. What is revenge, real quickly, to move back? Revenge is this, simply. Revenge is wanting someone to pay now for a crime or offense against you without any desire for reconciliation or restoration. You just want them to pay. You want your pound of flesh. That's what you want. And the ways we seek revenge, my goodness, they are innumerable. They are innumerable. The wrongful action of taking matters into our own hands, as David is perhaps tempted to do, and his men are definitely tempted to do, and taking vengeance into our own hands takes many forms. One of the ways that you can bring up, you get revenge, is you bring up the past offense over and over and over again, using something of the past to extort a person or to bring guilt into their life. It can be nasty words to someone's face. It can be physical. It can be physical aggression. But more often for us subtle, very, you know, cultured Western people like we are, we don't physically attack people. What do we do? We kill them with our nasty looks and our barbed words. It is the cutting remarks. We ask to talk to people under the garb of reconciliation when in reality what we want to do is to rehash the past, to punish them by making them feel guilty for whatever supposed offense that they have committed against you. Basically what you're doing here is punishing them over and over again in the hopes of making them feel as bad as they do. As bad as they do. But more often we're even more backhanded than that. We're far more passive-aggressive. Again, we're very sophisticated people. 
And so we go about our vengeance in backhanded ways. We intentionally avoid or we withdraw from people. Revenge can be as subtle as simply a casually placed comment. And if you're in a workplace environment and someone has maybe stolen a sale from you or has treated you inappropriately, has spoken in a nasty way, or just generally a person you don't really want to be around, and so what do you do? You go and speak to somebody else and talk about, oh, so-and-so, well, man, their work just isn't quite up to par. Kind of sow the seeds of discord and disconfidence about someone. What we talk about in the church world where we talk about someone who is really struggling with their bitterness and their anger, and so we need to pray for them. But they're really having a hard time about this. And suddenly we have tarnished someone's reputation. A word spoken, a smile withheld, can all hold the sting of revenge. Often what we do is we slowly bring more and more people into our camp. Oh, I haven't really, I haven't shared with people, only, only my closest friends about what the offense is against me. But what you come to realize is they have told a whole plethora of people they're building an army perhaps of 3,000 that they're building up against somebody that will act natively toward the person that has offended them. It's the person we seek revenge by punishing people with simply the coldness of our presence. (laughs) I'll be there, but I'll let you know that I am not happy about, about you and what you have done. Frederick Nietzsche says it so well. He says this, It is impossible to suffer without making someone pay for it. Every complaint contains revenge. Every complaint contains revenge. And perhaps more than any active or passive approach to revenge is actually the internal revenge that we seek. And this is the revenge that, that out of which the, both the passive and the active flow, but it's the one that, that, that ruminates inside. It's the holding of a grudge where we constantly think negatively about a person. We blow the smallest infractions out of proportion or we project uh, motivations upon other people. We skew everything a person does. We twist their words. We project upon them every action word, some negative motivation. We have a, you ever done this? And when someone has offended you deeply, that you just think about a conversation that you really want to have with them, or you just let them have it, and you just relish. You just enjoy in your heart of hearts that conversation over and over and over and over, where you will finally get to say all the things that perhaps you're just too cowardly to say to their face. We have a kind of conversation in our head. We replay the tape of what they have done wrong and what we have done right over and over in our head. Revenge is a story that is retold. It is rehearsed and relived and replayed in our hearts so that it's as fresh today as it was maybe three weeks ago or three months ago or three years ago or 30 years ago. We chew on methods of revenge in our heads. And what we have to see here is in, in this that revenge comes from our heart of hearts. And you have to understand that revenge is a bitter pill that turns your heart into acrid, bitter, acidic, boiling lava that will destroy your life from the inside out. Revenge is, it resides deep within us and it is never satisfied. James tells us this in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
Your passion for revenge. Your passion for wrath to be poured out. Your passion for vengeance. And he goes on to say in verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Murder. Now James is talking to the church there. You think they have a rash of issues of serial murderers in the church? Of people showing up to church with AKs or machetes? That's not what's going on. He's talking about the murder that goes along in at the heart. James says that there is a passion and there is an energy deep within your heart that leads to murder. And it probably most likely is not actual murder. But it's the revenge rehearsed in your heart over and over and over again. And we don't normally think of our cutting remarks and our nasty looks and our passive-aggressive behavior as being murder, do we? We simply say, it's well, well, I just can't emotionally handle being around that person right now. We think of our anger as simply being a drop in the bucket in the sea of wrath that is out there. That this is nothing in comparison We think, well, I'm just not being as kind as I could be. But for so many of us, our lives revolve around this. In fact, some of you, some of you, you're you're living your whole life that you think that you're living your life in anger at your parents, and you think that you've run away from home, and you think you've rejected everything about your parents, but in actually, so many of you are living as if your parents still control you because you're living in utter and absolute reaction to the offenses that they had against you. Dan Allender wrote a book called Bow Love. Dan Allender's a fairly famous and well-known Christian counselor. He shares a story about a man who chose um, the career um, as a lawyer. And he said he wanted to be a lawyer when he came to Dan Allender for counseling about some issues in his life. He said he wanted to be a, a lawyer to live out his crusade against all pretenders and fakes. See, this man, his father was a pompous, arrogant businessman who used his positions of power to humiliate those who came in contact with his peers and his neighbors, and he indeed humiliated his very son. And the man, this man, who became a lawyer, wanted his father to pay. And he was brimming over with a furious, blind tempest of vengeance. And in his case, the practice of law, Allender says, the practice of law provided a, a, a vehicle, a well-paid and societally sanctioned version of murder where he could prosecute his father and prosecute every disagreeable thing about his father and yet be able to do it with society's blessing. And he could be, make cruel, pompous businessmen pay Men just like his dad. This is actually how he lived his life. His life was a life of murder based around getting his father back. You know, understand this. Your nasty thoughts, your pointed looks, your bristling, your gossiping, it is indeed murder. And the consequences of this are great, not simply for the church and not just for the person to whom you're going after, but the consequences are great for you. There is something very interesting here, and this is a test in David's life. In fact, we're going to see it's so important that the author of 1 Samuel is going to bring it up again. Two chapters later, in chapter 26, we get an almost identical scenario in which David has an opportunity to kill Saul. And in verse 5 of chapter 24, there's something very interesting that's going on. David, it says he gets up. And in the Hebrew, what that means, it's it's a word that talks about he gets up with with purpose. It almost appears like he's listened to the men around him, that he's finally decided, okay, they're right. God has provided Saul into my hands. I'm going to take him out. But then he goes up, and instead of killing Saul, it's like as he goes to kill Saul, he decides that he's conscience-stricken, and so he just cuts his robe. And even there, though, he's conscience-stricken. 
because cutting the robe was a vindictive act. So instead of killing Saul, he, takes his, he cuts his robe, which is an act of saying, I am indeed going to take the kingdom from you. It's an act of kind of saying, one day I will get you. I didn't get you today, but one day I will. But David struck to the heart. And what he realizes there, and what is his, the temptation for David in this moment, is will he be just like Saul? What is the whole reason why Saul is after David in the first place? David, although it is an unjust seeking of vengeance and revenge on Saul's part, but he's after David because God has given David the throne. And so Saul was offended at David. And so David, David here has an opportunity. Will he let his anger at Saul go or will he become just like Saul? Will he live his life in, in revenge and vengeance against his enemies? Will he become like Saul? But we see here that David, in the very moment in which he could move and become exactly like the king who preceded him, instead God called, convicts him and he repents of his sin. And what we must come to terms with is this. Is this. Is that if we give way to anger, we will become simply much like those who have offended us. And but even deeper than that, we must come to terms with our longing for vengeance. That ultimately, our issue is less about the person to whom we are seeking vengeance against and more about seeking vengeance from against God. That our issue is less with that person, but with God himself. David understands why Saul's after him. And actually in David's speech before Saul, when he goes out and says, and he makes a claim, he says, Saul, what have I done to you? And you look and look at the evidence of David's life. What reason could Saul have to be going after David? David has done nothing but honor Saul and care for Saul and protect Saul. There is a person that Saul is is angry at, but ultimately it is not David. It is the one to whom has anointed David to be king. It is God himself that Saul is angry at. David says this in front of Saul, After whom has the king of Israel come out? After a dog? After a flea? What he is saying there is, I'm too small for you to deal with. You're a king. Your anger actually is against someone who's far greater than me. I'm just a dog, just a flea, just somebody who kind of got in your way for a moment. But your anger is actually directed at God himself. He exposes Saul here. That ultimately, our longing for vengeance is born out of, and in acting revenge and vengeance, is born out of our lack of trust and our dissatisfaction with what God has brought into our lives. In our rage and our longing for revenge, we justify ourselves and we go after other people, but ultimately it's not usually about them. Ultimately it's about shaking our fist at God and saying, how dare you allow this person to offend me in this way? How dare you allow this person to remove that blessing from me? Your quarrel ultimately is with God. But God is too big and too powerful, right? (laughs) We can try to enact revenge against God, but that doesn't go very well. You can't actually bring God down a peg, but you can bring down another human. So instead, we disillusion ourselves, and we simply think, well, I'm just holding vendettas against these people, this person over here. But the reality is this, that the seeking of vengeance on our terms, what will happen is that vengeance eventually will take hold of us. It will take hold of us. Again, Dan Aldender in his book, Bold Love, talks about this and gives an example of it from a woman that he was counseling. She had, this woman had been abused by her father and mother, and she said she would never, ever forgive her father. 
And Allender decided to pose, after many months of working with her in counseling, to pose this question. And here's what he put before. He said this, What if God gave you a choice between two buttons? The button on the left would utterly destroy your father. The button on the right would transform him to a soft-hearted, repentant man who is the father who you have always longed to have. Which button would you push? She was stunned for a long time, he said. In fact, her shock turned into silent, glaring rage. He said she actually sat in silence for over 20 minutes, mulling over this question, just glaring at him in the counseling room. And eventually she said this, You have put me into a terrible bind. If I push the button on the left, thus bringing the destruction that I have longed for so long for my father, then I am as evil as he is in wanting revenge. But if I push the button on the left, then I am admitting that I want him to be my father once again. And I am more afraid of my heart feeling desire than I am of being evil. And therefore, I choose the button on the left. You see what you see what's going on there? She was more afraid of transformation and more afraid of reconciliation and restoration. Her lifeblood had become about getting revenge. She is enslaved to her hatred and to her self-pity and to her anger. Some of you know the story of Corey Tim Boom, and if you don't, you should go pick up her book and read her story. She was um, put in a concentration camp during the Nazi regime for hiding Jews, and her sister and her father were both killed in the concentration camp, but she lived. She began a journey of walking through what it looks like to forgive people who had done such horrible atrocities to her, and she says this, though, in relation to how our revenge takes hold of us. She said, forgiving your enemy and not taking revenge is to set the prisoner free. And ultimately, the prisoner that set us set free is you. Is you. The reality is, is that is really, really hard, isn't it? Not seeking revenge actually feels like death. It is painful. See, when you do this, when you decide to set your vengeance and your longing for revenge aside, every time you do it, every time you have opportunity to take a pound of flesh and you choose not to do it, it hurts. Because in other words, what you do by refraining from bringing up about their offense or trying to make someone feel bad, every time you refrain from talking to other people about them, every time you just turn your thoughts away from nursing your resentment, it hurts. Because what it means is you have to come to embrace the full offense that has been given to you against you and you have to actually weep you know why because what you're doing is ultimately is you're paying the debt you're having to pay the debt that person has extracted for example if someone runs into you with their car and they're the one who is liable you can choose in that moment to say you can pay the debt you you are the one responsible i'm going to extract the debt from you Or you can choose in that moment, forgiveness would look like actually saying, no, no, I will pay the debt. I will pay what it costs to restore the car. And this relinquishing of vengeance is indeed the first key step towards restoration and towards forgiveness. But it is a painful one. Because you have to choose to say, I will not extract the payment from you. 
And eventually what it means is you will have to then come to face with the terms of what it means of the fact that the payment is going to be extracted from yourself. Here's an example of the long road of laying down vengeance and picking up forgiveness. This is a quote from a young man who had to forgive a woman who had led him on and then jilted him. And he thought that he was going to marry this woman and she, she led him on and then she ripped his heart out. And here's what he said. Once I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but it took forgiving her in small sums over a course of a whole year. I forgave her in small sums over a year, done when I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, done whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity when seeing her with another man, and done when I praised her to others when I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments. Pain is the consequence of sin, and I had to choose to take the pain. There is no easy way to deal it with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, but it is the love that heals not just her, but me. The choice to not seek vengeance yourself, to not seek revenge, is the first step to forgiveness, but it is a painful one. So therefore, how, how do we as prisoners to our revenge, how are we set free? How do we choose to do this? We, we need something to help us. David persuaded his men not to attack Saul. How does David do that? David has a guy who literally has taken everything from him. Everything from him. And yet he chooses to lay down, to relinquish his revenge. How do you relinquish revenge? Two things I want to see this morning on relinquishing revenge. First, you must remember this. You must remember God's promise of vengeance. You must remember God's promise of vengeance. David does not seek his own security by seeking it in any change of heart in Saul or in any fresh promise from Saul. Rather, he casts his case where? He tells it to Saul. He tells Saul. In verse 12, it says this, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Here then is the secret that explains David's ability to wait. David's ability to move towards restoration and forgiveness is his confidence in Yahweh's justice. That Yahweh will bring vengeance. Vengeance is a good thing. It is a right thing. There will be vengeance. And Yahweh will be the one who brings it. And in fact, in this, David is actually being an obedient man. He's obeying the law of God. This whole verse about um, vengeance is mine, that saith the Lord, is not a word that comes to us in the New Testament post-Jesus. It is an Old Testament Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, this is where God says it to Israel. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. It's repeated again in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, or it goes even further into the depths of it, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But it goes on. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And how's it end? I am the Lord. That you root your love for neighbor... You're putting aside grudges and you're relinquishing the longing for vengeance because he is the Lord and he is the God of justice. Now, this involves two things if you're going to do this. You've got to come to two, ter- two terms or two realities. You have to remember this. You are not God. That you are not God. 
You must confess that in the longing for vengeance is what you're longing for in this moment is a longing to play God. That you're the one who you must relinquish that longing. You see, only God is positioned rightly to to seek vengeance. If you read the book, Count of Monte Cristo, and you get to the end of the four or five hundred pages, it is quite in-depth, and it is quite twisted. But at the very end, Monte Cristo has to learn from the, his own sorrows that comes to terms with what has brought, he has brought into his life by his own seeking revenge. And he says this in one of the final quotes of the whole book. Tell the angel who will watch over your life to pray now, and then for a man who, like Satan, believed himself for an instant to be equal to God but who then had to realize in all humility that supreme power and wisdom are in the hands of God alone. The great sin of Satan was what? He wanted to be God. And in our longing for vengeance, we want to take on the role of God himself. In chapter 26, there's going to be a similar scene where David has the chance to take Saul's life. And he does not do so. It says this in verse 10 of chapter 26. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Talking about Saul. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. Now it's interesting. Not only does David relinquish that it's God's right to have vengeance. But David even relinquishes the way in which God will seek vengeance. He says this. Think about it. He says, God, God, God God could strike him dead himself. God could allow Saul to die in battle, or Saul could even just die of old age. These are all different outcomes, but here's what David is saying in this. The point is this, that only God knows ultimately what Saul deserves. David does not. That what we do in trying to seek revenge and vengeance is we have taken upon ourselves omniscience about whatever situation that we're angry about. That we think we know about every motivation of, the, of our enemies' hearts. That we know about everything that they have done. And what David is saying this is, listen, God, you can bring wrath. Maybe you're just going to let Saul die of old age. Maybe his offenses against me are just not as bad as I realize. Or that I think. Or maybe you'll take him out with your own hand. Or maybe you'll take him out in battle. But in the end, I'm not the one who gets to determine that. Only you have the right to judge. Because only God has the omniscience, that is the all-knowing, to know the fullness of a situation. You don't know what's going through a person's heart. You don't know their motivations. You don't know exactly what's going on. And therefore, a part of acknowledging and remembering God's promises, you must first remember that you are not God. And you have to lay that down. But the second thing this involves is remembering that vengeance is actually a part of God's character. It will come. It will come. God says, vengeance is mine. You must repent of playing God, but then second, you must believe in the character and promises of God. You see, repentance and belief. You see, revenge is not always wrong. God actually says, I'm going to get vengeance. Once again, one more time, Dan Allender says this. Vengeance is part of the character of God. It is not in contradiction. His vengeance, his longing for vengeance, is not in contradiction with his love and his mercy. Revenge involves a desire for justice. It is the intense wish to see ugliness destroyed, wrongs righted, and beauty restored. It is as inherent to the human soul as a desire for loveliness. Your longing for vengeance points to something good in you. It's a longing for God's justice. But ultimately, that justice is brought by God himself, and that is in the character of God. And so therefore, let me ask you this. Will you trust the character of God? Will you trust that he knows rightly? Now understand this. And this is hard for us as 
21st century New Testament believers to, to hold this intention. But leaving judgment and vengeance to God is not a pale or sedate or an anemic affair. Go read the Psalms. David, even in the most seemingly happy Psalms, David is talking about his enemies being destroyed and being crushed. Let me just read a few for you. Psalm 54, verse 5. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. You will put an end to them. Psalm 58. Break the teeth of the wicked in their mouths. Psalm 59. O Lord, if you would only slay the wicked. People think these are harsh and vindictive prayers, but in actuality, these are obedient prayers. David is doing exactly what God has called him to do. He said, you lay down your seeking vengeance and you give it to me. You give it to me. The place to process your longing for revenge is before the face of God. To cry out with all the bitterness of spirit and heart and say, God, this is what I long to do, but you are calling me to give this to you. And as an act of trust, this is what I long for you to do. And I am entrusting that you, the one who sees all things, the perfect judge will judge rightly. Will judge the meditations of my heart about my enemy, whether my meditations are evil or whether they're right and just. Only you get to determine that. Would you do this? Perhaps you would be emotionally far more healthy if you would cry out to God in your bitterness. In 1661, there's a story of some folks who did this. And it is a graphic story, but for those who lived in that kind of time, they had to have a harsh way of doing this. There's a man named James Guthrie in which he was um, put to death by what was called the drunken parliament. This is a time in which in England there was various times where the Roman Catholics would come to power and they would come and they would sweep away many Protestants and they would put them to death. And he was, this man, uh, James Guthrie, was hanged. And then after he was hanged, just for good measure, they cut off his head. And then not only that, but they didn't want his family to, to even benefit from this man. So what they also said is they passed a law saying that none of his children or grandchildren could own land in England. They were not to have any title or position. And in the midst of this, the people who were friends of James Guthrie, they took his body and they put it in his coffin, what was left of his body, and there were women who were preparing his body in the coffin. And they were, what they were doing is they took their handkerchiefs and they were dipping it in his own blood. And there was a man who was there, and he looked at them, and he said, what are you doing? That he thought they were doing some sort of suspicious kind of cultic rite, and they said, no, we're going to take these handkerchiefs, and we're going to cry out to God and raise them up, and cry out for God to bring his justice and his vengeance to bear. Some of you need to take bloody handkerchiefs, because there has actually been wrong that has been done to you. There has been offenses against you, and you need to raise them up before the Lord and say, God, I give you vengeance. I give you vengeance. It is only then, it is only when you have come to terms with you have a God whose character is wrathful, a God who longs for vengeance, a God who is just, that you'll be able to lay it down. Fyodor Dostoevsky, who was a victim of many atrocities in Russia, says this, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that we've shed, that it will make it only possible to forgive, not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. The only means by which you are going to be able to forgive is if you come to terms with the fact that you have a wrathful and just and vengeful God who will make it right at the end. And therefore, you'll be able to lay down your swords.
your swords. Lastly, that's not the only means of relinquishing vengeance that we have, though. We have something more than David had. David had the truth of God's character that God will seek vengeance, but we have something even more that has been revealed in Christ Jesus. See, one of the great themes of the Bible is this, because that you and I should not seek vengeance, not only because God is the God who is justice and vengeance, but only that, but you and I are people who live by the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone. It would be absolutely unjust to withhold mercy when God has been merciful to you. You see, the means of God's vengeance, the means by which God seeks vengeance in the cross reveals that God is merciful and gracious to you. In verse 19, Saul asked this question, and when I read through the text, I stopped and pointed it out. Saul asked this rhetorical question, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safely? And the answer, everyone who's reading the text is going, absolutely not. That if a man has been after your family for 10 years and is seeking your life, you don't let him go. Saul is utterly shocked. He knows wrath is what he deserves, and yet he gets mercy from David. There has to be payback, he thinks. This is why you find your enemies, right? This is why you seek them out. This is why you mow over in your head. It's because you want to bring payback. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? No, no. We will get our pound of flesh. We will get our pound of flesh. Gary Ridgway, some of you may know this if you're a little bit older. He was known as the Green River Killer. He killed 71 women. But in 2003, he actually confessed and pleaded guilty to 43 of those murders. And they had a trial, one of those very public trials where everybody who has any offense against Gary Ridgway was allowed to come speak at the courts. And person after person, angry relative after angry relative came to the court and each of them would speak with hostility and rage and condemning language. The camera was focused on him and the whole time he just kept stone faces. They told him as these people came before him and said, you're an animal. You deserve to die. You deserve to rot in hell. And in the midst of this barrage of hate that was spewed at him, he stood stone faced. No emotional reaction. But then one older gentleman stood up. Ridgway had killed this man's daughter when she was only 16 years old. And he stood and spoke before the court. And he spoke to Ridgway. He said this, Many people here hate you, but I am not one of them. I forgive you for what you have done to my little girl. You have made it very difficult for for me to believe the gospel, but I, I have received the mercy of God and not his wrath. And therefore, my friend, I give you mercy. The stone face of Gary Ridgway in the midst of the court, when everyone had been slowing slander and hatred and hellish threats at him, suddenly broke and he sobbed in front of the court. What breaks Saul? Ten years Saul has come after David. Ten years, Saul has shaken his fist at him, longing for his own vengeance. And what breaks him? Mercy. Forgiveness. If a man finds an enemy, what will he do? Brothers and sisters, did you know that you have been found? That the Bible describes you as this, that you are God's enemy. For once you are his enemy, but now you're considered his friend. Why? Because there was one who stood up and said, I have found you. I have found you. You've stood in accord and I declare you guilty. 
but the full force of God's vengeance did not come upon you. Us who've shaken our fists at God, us who said, God, I want nothing to do with you, God, who have, we have abused God's good gifts and God's creation, and instead of the wrath of God, the vengeance and justice of God falling upon us, it fell where? Jesus came and drank the cup of wrath so that you may know only the cup of God's affection. Listen, hearing God shake his fist at you and say, you deserve hell, you decrepit, depraved humans, that won't break you. But seeing the mercy of God will break you. Have you received mercy like this? If you have, if you've heard on the cross that Jesus saying to Telestai, it is finished, that your sins have paid for, that revenge has happened, that vengeance has been poured out, there is nothing left for you but affection, then, it is then, that you'll be able to lay down yours. And look at the very person who has offended you and hurt you and wounded you. And like that man who cried out to Gary Ridgway and say, I forgive you, my friend, and you are my brother. It is the first step. It is the first step to restoration. Man, I hope you cling to the cross in that way. Perhaps maybe some old relationships might get restored. Let's pray. God, the truth is this, is we, just, we like being angry too much. It feels too good. And if we stop thinking about how much we hate the person who's offended us, and stop thinking about how we're going to get revenge, well, we just might break down and cry. That the sorrow of what we've endured we might finally break us. Oh, but gracious God, would you break us? Would you put an end to our our running around seeking bitterly to bring an end to the person who is our enemy? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, there are those in this room who, Lord, this task, this task, it feels impossible. Lord, I I don't want to um, undercut how hard this is. That there are men and women in this room who have been raped by someone. And the calling of this text is to lay down their hatred. That there have been men and women in this room whose moms and dads spoke abusive words to them. And Lord, it might feel like their life is coming to an end if they lay down their longing for vengeance. God, the only thing we can do is cling to the cross. And so I pray that brothers and sisters in this room this morning would sense your experience, your unbelievable forgiveness and mercy. That it would melt their stony hearts. That it would allow them to walk the path of death. The death of moving towards a former abuser. Working, moving towards in restoration our brother and sister who's hurt them. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we'd be a church that lives at the foot of the cross. Bring it to bear upon us, God, in all its beauty and even in all its sorrow and in all its pain. We need it, Lord. Without it, we're done for. The Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us to the sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.